Our text today comes from Luke chapter 16. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he might testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we come to your throne in a holy fear and sobriety of the reality of your judgment and your justice. We also come to you in joy as your children. You are our Father who is tender and gracious. And so we rest in you even when you say hard things for us to conceive of. When you say hard things that are hard for us to, to receive, we give you thanks and we trust. And I pray today that you would give me the ability to articulate these things clearly and give us all hearts of faith, receptive, soft hearts to hear what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is the first image that comes to your mind when I say the word hell? Do you imagine it to be a dungeon where Satan and his demons rule, where they put souls through various complicated tortures? Is hell uh, not that, but is it a big party place where um, you and all of your friends, your heathen friends, get to hang out for eternity. You're finally out from under the scorn and the wagging bony fingers of the Puritans and the, uh, and the do-gooders. Is that, is that what hell is? It's just a big frat party for eternity. What about heaven? What, what images does heaven bring to mind? Um, is it boring? Is it ethereal, it's a cloudy place where everyone has wings and a harp and a halo and they all speak in King James English and you just kind of sit around bored forever? Is that, your, is that your image of heaven? Both the concepts of heaven and hell have been terribly warped in our culture and both are always depicted far differently from anything we read about in the Bible. Heaven and hell are more commonly the settings for jokes and comic strips than they are the subject of sober reflection and, and thoughts on eternity, at least in our broader culture. How many jokes begin with someone dying and ending up at the pearly gates in an interview, in an interview with St. Peter? Or somebody going to hell and then having a, a humorous outcome after a deal 
or a bargain with the devil. How often have you heard someone make an off-color joke or a tasteless joke and then say something like, ha ha, I guess I'm going to hell for that one, uh, but it's totally worth it. Uh, that's, the, that's the kind of lack of sobriety that we tend to see and hear around these subjects, especially around the subject of hell in our world. There's a complete lack of gravity in the way the world regards the subject of hell, and perhaps also within the church, an embarrassment over the doctrines of eternal reward and punishment. The suggestion that those who die in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, the suggestion that they will suffer an eternity of conscious torment is met with strong reactions of disgust and incredulity. How can you say that? How can you believe that? That's positively medieval. That's antiquated to believe in an eternal conscious punishment. Nobody believes that anymore, right? Uh, how much uh, more would we, would we prefer to believe in a, in a universal salvation or at the very least an annihilation of unbelievers so that they don't have to go through eternity? They just simply cease to exist. But is any of that supported by the Bible? Furthermore, you would think that we would at least be comfortable with the doctrine of heaven in the church, but I've noticed in, in my conversations that, that discussions of heaven are just as commonly met with anxiety and maybe even revulsion because who wants to be bored for eternity? It's, it's impossible to imagine how, how eternity in this image of heaven that most people have is a good thing. We've got a lot of bad theology, and we've got a lot of cultural baggage around these subjects, and so it's important to remind ourselves that God has spoken on this. We're, we're not left to ourselves to try to figure out what any of this means. God has spoken. His word is truth. His word is authoritative, and though he does not answer all of our questions, and I'm not even going to be able to begin to answer even most of our questions today, his word is sufficient. He has told us exactly what he wants us to know. And he has withheld some things that in his wisdom, uh, he just hasn't revealed to us and he, and he hasn't saw fit to tell us. But our job is to believe what he says, to acknowledge also that it is ultimately good, to have a, 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 such a deep trust in what God has said that we are not swayed when something is unpopular or antiquated, but that we trust him no matter what. The Westminster Confession of Faith gives a helpful summary of the Bible's teaching on heaven and hell. And by the way, Pastor Jones and I have uh, started this series that'll take us up to Easter, where we're talking about what, what do we believe about major headings of doctrine. And this is something that uh, I haven't talked about in a while. We haven't talked about heaven and hell directly. We haven't separated some time to talk about heaven and hell. So I thought this is one we ought to we ought to hit on, because it is so often misconstrued and misunderstood everywhere. So uh, the Westminster Confession gives us a helpful summary of the Bible's teaching on heaven and hell. The confessions are not scripture. We don't, we don't treat them like scripture, but the confessions do give us language and a framework and a way to understand and articulate our theology. So we're going to get into a number of Bible texts today, but, but here are a couple of summary statements from the confession. And by the way, this is what Christians have received and believed. This is how we articulate our, our trust around these things so that you know I'm not just making things up. 
Um, Westminster Confession, chapter 32, on the state of man after death. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. And then chapter 33 of, of Westminster Confession of Faith, of the last judgment, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. All persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds and receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So from those two sections of the confession, I'd like to organize our thoughts today as, as clearly as possible. Or I'd, I'd like to organize these around four, four principal teachings. One, that while our bodies die, our souls endure, and that we all have continued eternal consciousness. Number two, there is a judgment for everyone, and based on that judgment, we will either go into eternal life or eternal torment. Three, that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. And four, that heaven is the place where the blessing of God is fully realized and where the righteous have eternal life and rest. And I want to spend just a few minutes on each one of these in order. First, while our bodies die, our souls endure, and we have continued eternal consciousness. For every single one of us, there is coming a day where our lungs are going to draw their last breath, where our hearts are going to beat from the la for, for the last time, and we all are going to pass into eternity. The younger you are, the less you think about that. The older you are, the more you think about that. The more that that day is inevitable, and you sense that, that you've probably got less time on earth than you've spent here already. Uh, that's a reality. We all are going to pass from this life into eternity. Our bodies will decay and return to the dust from which they were created. But that will not be the end of us. God has created us as living souls. So we are uh, uh, flesh and soul together makes up us. And, and Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that in death, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. Death is a tearing apart of the soul and the body, so that the body goes down into corruption. The body decays, but the spirit lives, lives on. Psalm 146 that we sang this morning speaks about the death of a man in a parallelism. He said, um, his spirit departs, he returns to his earth. Well, the, 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 the you that is your body dies, the you that is your spirit departs. And this is true of both those who are in Christ and those who are not. Uh, believers have life beyond death. As Jesus says to Martha in John 11, Jesus says, he who believes in me, though he may die, 
he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So, so that there, the, the you that is you, the soul that is you, will go on after your body dies. But unbelievers also uh, go on. Um, Isaiah warns the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, 9. Uh, he says, hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nation. So what Isaiah says to the king of Babylon is that you're gonna have an existence after this life and you will join your friends in hell. You're going to join all those who likewise are being judged in death, and they're going to be stirred up to, to meet you. In the parable that we read just a few minutes ago from Luke, Jesus gives us a look into the life that is beyond the grave. And while the scene there depicts the reality of the way things were arranged before the cross, we can still pick up some important instruction about the consciousness uh, after physical death, that it, that is a reality, and then and then we'll spend just a minute or two uh, on what changed after the work of Jesus on the cross and in His resurrection, because um, I don't believe that things are arranged like they are in this parable today, and I'll explain why in just a minute. But this parable depicts the realm called Hades in the Greek, in the Hebrew it's called Sheol. It's the place of the dead before Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. So that those who die in faith, those who repented and trusted Yahweh, end up with Abraham in a place of rest, like Lazarus did. And those who live their own way and those who do not trust Yahweh end up in a place of torment. And there is an unbreachable gulf begin between the two. At the beginning of the parable, we meet a wealthy man who feels safely insulated by his riches. He doesn't believe he has any responsibility toward the poor, and every day there is a feast for the rich man. And there is also a sick and poor man named Lazarus who lies at the gate of his property who would have been happy to have had the crumbs that fell from his table. Jesus doesn't say he got the crumbs, just he would have been happy to receive them. Dogs come and lick his sores. Uh, Jews didn't keep dogs as house pets. These must have been packs of wild dogs that are a nuisance. They hassle and they pester the poor man. Both are very different in life. Both have a very different existence in, in life on earth. But both men die. Both men die. And both men have continued consciousness after their physical death. When Lazarus dies, he doesn't get a funeral. He doesn't get a burial. But the angels carry him to the place of rest. The rich man also dies, and he is taken to Hades, where he can see across a gulf. He can see Abraham, and he can even see the poor man that he ignored. For the rich man, he is aware of what is happening to him. He's aware of his punishment. He is in torment and flame. He remembers his brothers. He's able to speak. He has maintained his identity. He's still the same man. He just has lost his body in death. Uh, he, what, what he doesn't do in all of this is repent. Hell hasn't changed his heart. In fact, it may harden even further his heart. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus as an errand boy. He's like, hey, get that boy to come over here and, and moisten my tongue with some water. Hey, get that boy to go talk to my uh, brothers, go warn my brothers. He still arrogantly wants to tell everybody what to do, just like he did in life, 
But his demands are not satisfied here. Abraham is not uh, bound to respond to him or, or to give him what he wants. Abraham is here and Abraham speaks. Abraham is still Abraham. Abraham is still identified as Abraham. And Abraham says to the rich man, he says, in life you were comforted and Lazarus was tormented, but now all this has changed. And now Lazarus is comforted and you are tormented. Lazarus is at rest and peace. And so because of this great gulf in between them, there's no traffic between the two sides of Hades. And the picture that Jesus gives us here in this parable is the clearest depiction we have of eternal blessing and judgment of specific individuals. There is a conscious awareness of individuals after bodily death. Now, here's the question. Why are Abraham and Lazarus not in heaven? Why are they not in the presence of Yahweh? Why are they in Hades? And even though they're in a, a peaceful, restful place, uh, it's not heaven. Well, this is before the cross. Jesus tells this parable during his ministry, and this is, this is before the cross and before the resurrection. In order for anybody to enter into the presence of God in heaven, there must be a perfect sacrifice for sin. And that hasn't happened yet. So it appears that all of the Old Testament saints went to a temporary place of rest, waiting for the redemption that was to come through Messiah, waiting for the atonement of the great high priest Jesus so that they could enter God's presence clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, we confess in the Apostles' Creed, we say, after his death on the cross, Jesus descended into Hades. Where do we get that? What are we saying there? Well, uh, we get that from Psalm 16 and Acts 2, uh, where we read that with the resurrection, God the Father did not leave Jesus in Hades. He didn't leave his soul in Sheol. That's what uh, those two passages say. Um, not just God didn't leave him in the grave. No, that's true. But it, we also read God did not leave him in in Hades. So that means then that Jesus, when he was brought um, out of the grave, that he had been to, to Hades, the place that he talks about in Luke chapter 16. Remember that Jesus tells the thief on the cross, he says, um, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, um, he doesn't say, I'll meet you in heaven today. Um, and maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but I think there's something there that that after the cross, Jesus still had another job to do that day, that he wasn't going immediately directly into his father's presence, but that he goes into Hades because he has work to do there. First Peter 2, I'm sorry, First Peter 3 and First Peter 4 say that after Jesus' death, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What is Peter talking about there? Uh, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive. If we, if we try to triangulate all this and, 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 and take these things and, and, and figure out what is happening, it appears to me that after the death of Jesus, the body of Jesus goes into the grave, the spirit of Jesus goes down into Hades, the city of death, and like Samson rips the gates off the city of Gaza, Jesus goes down to rip the gates off the city of death, and uh, he uh, gets the old covenant saints all caught up on the gospel. 
He, he gets them all, uh, uh, all educated on what he has done and who he is and how he's fulfilled all of God's promises. And then he leads out of Hades, he leads out Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and John the Baptist and the rest of the old covenant faithful. He leads them out in a great victory parade, ransoming them from the power of Sheol and ushering them into the Father's presence. The unbelieving remain in that place where the rich man was and still is today. So that now when someone dies, trusting in Jesus, the angels don't take them to Abraham's bosom. No, that's, that's what happened before the cross. Now the angels take you to the presence of Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, not with Abraham, not in Hades, but to be present with the Lord. So we don't go to Abraham's bosom, we don't go to Hades, we go to the presence of the Lord. And, and all of this, in, in trying to unpack this parable, is in support of that first point, while our bodies die, our souls endure, and we have continued eternal consciousness, like the rich man, like Abraham, like Lazarus. Secondly, second point, uh, um, unfolding what the confession said. Um, there is a judgment for everyone, and we will all either go into eternal life or eternal torment. That judgment, that judgment that we are all going to face is carried out by the Lord Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4, um, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom. In, first, in John 5, Jesus says, the Father has given me the authority to execute judgment. And that day is coming when those who have done good will have a resurrection of life and those who have done evil will have the resurrection of condemnation. So it, um, the, the Bible speaks in two ways about judgment. The Bible speaks of this initial sorting of death, uh, I'm sorry, this, this initial sorting of individuals after their deaths into those who have trusted and those who haven't. Uh, but then there's a final sorting, there's a final judgment at the end um, where uh, the, the e eternal reward or the eternal judgment will be meted out. But everyone, everywhere, will be judged by Jesus. The wicked and all who refuse to obey the Father will have to face his righteous judgment. Romans chapter two speaks to the unrepentant. This is to unbelievers. He says, but in accordance with your hardness and with your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. It's not like the unrighteous just simply get dismissed. No, they are judged according to their deeds. In Revelation chapter 20, we read about the great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Unbelievers have a judgment, and it's a judgment based on what they have done and what they have 
have failed to do. Believers also will face Jesus in judgment, and believers also must give an account. Romans chapter 14, Paul speaks to believers now. He says uh, to the church, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. What this means is that everyone everywhere has an appointment before the judgment seat of Christ. That is an appointment that every single one of us will keep. And there, we will all give an individual accounting of our lives. Every word that is said, every deed that is done, everything that we've ever failed to do or that we have obeyed in uh, will, uh, will be accounted for. And, and, and this, this is all in light of the reality that you and I were created not for ourselves. We're created for God. He created us for his purposes. And that judgment determines, did you fulfill the purposes of your creator? Did you trust and love and obey him? Did you reflect his glory in the world? Because what you do in this life matters forever. Uh, why do we waste our time and our lives and our gifts and our opportunities knowing that we're going to have to give an account of every idle word, of every thoughtless deed. All of these things are going to be uncovered on the day of judgment. And there's language also in the Bible that, that indicates degrees of blessings for the righteous based on their faithfulness, degrees of punishment for the wicked. Jesus will say things like, it'll be more tolerable in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. If the, if the miracles that were done over here, uh, uh, done among you were done over here, they would have believed. But uh, you, you actually stand in greater condemnation. And that is an indication that there are degrees of judgment. There's also degrees of reward. In 1 Corinthians 3, um, Paul talks about how we, we build on the foundation of Christ. Good I'm sorry, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. And the day of the Lord is going to reveal all those works. Uh, our works will be tested as by fire. The wood, stable, uh, stubble, hay will be burned away. The gold, precious stones, the silver will, will remain. And then, uh, oh, what does he say there? Um, it just, um, oh, that promise. Um, Okay, uh, if, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, those who are in uh, trust and belief, uh, though their uh, works uh, may have been um, uh, faulty and, and, and not faithful, and, and you have these nominal Christians who are just, you seem like they're just scraping by. He says, you're... you're you're saved, but not your, not your works. Uh, you, you, are, you are delivered, yet so as, uh, as through fire. Um, so so it, it appears that there are these um, degrees of blessing and degrees of judgment, but um, as I wanted to point out there, the single deciding factor of our eternal state is whether we are in Christ or not. Either you come before the throne of judgment robed in Christ's righteousness given to you by grace through faith, or you come before the throne of judgment robed in your own righteousness, which is a terrifying proposition. Um, if we are covered in 
the righteousness of Christ, forgiven and cleansed of our sins, if we have had Jesus obey and fulfill his, his Father's law for us, if he has gone through death for us as our substitute, if he has absorbed the wrath of God, which was our penalty for sin, and if we have accessed all of this by faith, having received the free gift of God's grace offered to us in the gospel, if all of this is true, then we're welcomed into God's presence and blessing and life for eternity. If, however, we are covered in our own righteousness, which Isaiah says is like what? It's like filthy rags. If we have not been forgiven or cleansed, then we absorb the wrath of God for ourselves. You see, Jesus already took this for you. You don't have to absorb it yourself. And yet, if you appear before his throne um, not robed in Christ's righteousness, then uh, you are, are judged with a fire that is never quenched, which leads us to the third proposition, the third point, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. And by wicked there, we ultimately mean, we, we mean those who have committed the high sin of unbelief, whose hearts are full of rebellion and hatred for God. Now, I realize what I'm doing here and what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is something like a, a Bible verse dump. I'm just going to dump them all on you all at once. But what I want to do is I'd rather pile up what the Bible says about hell instead of giving you dramatic or embellished statements or speculations about hell. We've, we've got plenty of fiction. We've got plenty of fantasy surrounding the subject. So I, I, ra I would rather focus on how the scriptures describe it and define it. Again, we don't get all of our questions answered, but we can piece together what God has said that hell is real and unimaginably horrible. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks about the day of judgment vividly. He says in Matthew 25, 30, the wicked will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which indicates, again, consciousness, sorrow, regret, but not necessarily repentance. In verse 41 of the same chapter, uh, Jesus says, I will speak to the wicked, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, that counters the idea that Satan rules over hell or that Satan and his demons are like the, the warden and the, um, you know, the um, custodians of hell. Uh, that's not at all the fact. Hell is the place where Satan and his minions are also judged and, and punished. They are in hell. Uh, they are not over hell. Uh, hell is the place prepared for Satan and his angels. In Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says, these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now he's talking about the wicked there. He says, they go into everlasting punishment. The righteous go into everlasting life. If the punishment is not eternal, then the life is not eternal. You see, you've got to, you've got to define those both the same way. You can't say, well, the punishment's not eternal, but the life is. When Jesus is using that parallel. He's saying, one will go into eternal judgment. One will go into eternal life uh, because of the way they're set in parallel. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched and then he quotes Isaiah 66, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Um, that reference to worms comes up often in, in these uh, passages. It, it stirs up images of death and corruption and decay. People who've never read the Gospels 
uh, might be extremely shocked to know that Jesus spoke this way. Uh, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, and he does it with this voice of warning, and he calls everyone to turn from the darkness toward the light to lay down their corrupt self-righteousness and to come follow him in obedience to his father. And he says, this is what's going to happen if you don't do that, if you don't repent, if you don't follow me. And, and, and this is a, a warning, a pleading, but also a, a heartbroken cry to those who are rejecting him of the reality that they are embracing. Do you not see what is your, what is your destiny if you reject the gospel, if you reject what I am doing for you on the cross, Jesus says. In, in Revelation 14, in that section dealing with the vision of the beast, back when we studied Revelation, I proposed that the beast is that corrupt first century political allegiance between the temple and Rome. There's a warning for those who enter into that de demonic arrangement here from Revelation 14. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then later in chapter 20 of Revelation, the beast, um, the devil and, and who, who deceived him was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and his false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What are the images there that we collect from these passages? What, what, what do we glean? What, what are our describing words? What are our adjectives? Fire, smoke, darkness, torment, no rest, sorrow that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. This is the eternal sentence for unbelief. None of this is easy to think about. None of this is easy to talk about. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to conceive of any of this. It should be hard. It should be uncomfortable. If you are not moved with sorrow at the thought of hell, then there is a defect in your thinking. If your heart doesn't break at this prospect, there is a defect in your, in your heart. This grief is a good thing. The reason that it's difficult for us to think about eternal judgment for sin and even raise a question about what is just, right, or fair, the reason we are able to raise those questions is because God's Spirit has given us the ability to have pity and sorrow and love for other people. So we grieve like, like Paul does when he considers the unbelief of his countrymen. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Who put that grief there? Who gives you that grief? Well, the, the Holy Spirit grieves over sin, and you are grieving with the Holy Spirit. At the same time, though, we add to that grief the confidence that whatever God has ordained is right. So even when we don't understand something, we trust God. We don't, we don't reject something God says. We don't rebel against it. We come to the place where we acknowledge both the prospect of eternal judgment, which is horrifying, and that this is also good and right because God is good and in him there is no unrighteousness at all. In fact, it's far more horrifying to imagine a world in which God does not punish wickedness. 
and, and where everyone gets away with everything for eternity. And there's never a judgment day for tyrants or monsters or those who continually conspire evil, who never stop to consider what they do under the wrath of a holy God. It's comforting to know that all the savagery and brutality and wanton bloodshed and all the perversion will have its day. It will all come to an end. It's far less horrifying to think of hell in that case than it is of never there being a judgment of any kind. So fourthly, heaven is the place where the blessing of God is fully realized and where the righteous have eternal life and rest. Heaven is a place. It's not a state of mind. Heaven is not an illusion. Jesus goes into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Stephen gazes into heaven in Acts 7, and he sees Jesus there. Jesus has gone to a place. In John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a state of mind for you. No, I go to prepare a place for you. And, and part of the work that Jesus does there um, to go to prepare a place must include that preaching to the spirits in prison that Peter talks about and leading the Old Testament saints into heaven, populating heaven with people, which before that, heaven was the population, the habitation of angels. But now, now heaven is a place of rest for, for people. In heaven, we are delivered from our corruptible bodies. We are also delivered from the corruption of sin. We will no longer have the ability to sin. And if that's all it was, if that's, that's it, that's all we had to say about heaven, what? Oh my goodness, that, that's all I need, right? I mean, just give me that, and I don't deserve that. But if I just had the ability to not sin, if my heart were purified and I were able to love God with a pure, uh, a righteous heart all the time and just obey him, how much greater would that be? Romans 6 talks about our deliverance from death and sin. As, as the risen Christ is no longer under, under the dominion of death, so we share in the life that he has, which is a deliverance from the corruption of, of sin and death. Revelation 21 says that God will wipe away every tear. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's no more crying. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. We are out from, in heaven, we are out from under the curse and from the presence of sin. Paul sometimes uses the word sleep to, uh, to describe death. He, he uses it kind of as a euphemism, those who are asleep in Christ. And I don't think he means that the dead are literally unconscious, that, that the dead are in a coma, but that uh, he uses the word sleep because um, there's such a sublime peace and refreshment and recovery far beyond anything that we have ever experienced in the presence of God and his holy angels. Um, so what, what worries do you have right now? What worries are even plaguing your mind? You're trying to focus and you're trying to pay attention, but there's still some things on your mind that just keep nagging you, some, uh, some concerns or anxieties or, or fears or obsessive thoughts or disturbing thoughts. What, keep on listing them. What are they? What are they? Uh, uh, make, make a full inventory. What is nagging you? Do you know how many of those things you are going to keep in the presence of Jesus? You know how many of those things you're still going to be worried about in the presence of the Lord? Zero of them. That's how many. None of them. Not a single one of them. Um, uh, and, and that's a comfort to know that your loved ones right now are at rest. 
Those who have died in Christ are at rest. We grieve for them, but they are fine. They are better than fine. They are so much better off than, than we are because they've been delivered from all of this. They are truly at rest. It's also important um, that when we talk about heaven itself uh, and our souls entering into heaven to rest there, we recognize that this is a temporary arrangement, right? We, we go to wait there for the final judgment. We go to wait there for the great resurrection. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about our future resurrection, how we look forward to being clothed upon with bodies fit for eternity. We, we were not created to be disembodied spirits. Rather, we will be fitted with uh, uh, physical resurrection bodies made for eternity for the renewed heavens and earth. Uh, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this corruption will put on incorruption. Mortality will put on immortality. We are not immortal right now. We are going to die. That is, that is we, we will die. We are mortal. But at the resurrection, we will put on immortality. And, and Paul adds, we will be like Jesus. Our bodies will be like his resurrection body in all of its strength and perfections. Will we get to eat? Will we get to drink? Well, Jesus did in his resurrection body. He got to eat and drink. Uh, and we read in Revelation about feasts and about fruit-bearing trees. And so there are all these indications that we'll get to enjoy God's good creation for eternity as physical flesh and blood men and women for eternity, as people, not as angels, but we will enjoy God and his uh, created order as people. There's a popular gospel song, and some of you may, grow up, uh, may have grown up singing it, uh, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. Um, I, I'm not sure that time will be no more. I, 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 the trees in the New Jerusalem in, in Revelation 22, the trees bear 12 fruits, each one yielding its fruit every month. Well, if they're months, then there must be days. And if they're days, there must be weeks and, and years. There must be the marking and passage of time. Time is not the result of the fall, on the fourth day of creation, before the fall, God created the heavenly bodies for seasons to be a celestial calendar, a way of marking time for days and months and years. Now, certainly about 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 years into eternity, I'm sure we'll look at 100 years differently than we do today. I'm sure we'll look at 1,000 years differently than we do today. But you are not going to be bored at all. Imagine, I always love to imagine just having a few centuries to learn how to perfect something, to perfect writing poetry. How, how long you want? You want to take 500 years to perfect that? You want to take 1,000 years? What kind of songwriter would you be? What kind of woodworker would you be? What kind of seamstress would you be? Um, what kind of baker? I just want to take, I don't, I don't know my way around the kids. So let's take 2,000 years to perfect a chocolate cake. Let's do that. Uh, and then, and then, and then I'll, I'll just take the next few millennia to learn how to play the guitar um, and do that. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he was supposed to follow the rivers out of the Garden of Eden to take dominion over the whole earth. And now, in a new heavens and new earth, we have trillions of galaxies that, that um, are, are out there to explore. How many stars are in those galaxies? And you know, there are more planets than there are stars. How many wonders, how many delights, how many things are out there that God is presently, he's entertained by and he derives glory from. There are things in the cosmos that he enjoys that we haven't even imagined yet. 
There's things in our ocean that we haven't even figured out yet. But there are things in the cosmos that right now exist to bring glory to God. And one day, one day, I can imagine God delighting to say, come here, come here. You have seen nothing like this. And, and to show us for eternity, for eternity to explore and dwell in this amazing cosmos that God has created. We have barely even started to see just a tiny, tiny percentage of what God has created. Um, and, then, and then we'll get to go out, we'll get to discover it, we'll get to delight in it, to take dominion over it and return the praise and the glory to God for all of this. You are not going to be bored for eternity. Um, so, so what words then might we use to describe the eternal state of those who serve Jesus? Beauty, glory, purity, fellowship. Paul says we will know as we are known. We're going to preserve our identities just as Lazarus and just as Abraham did, just like Elijah and Moses did. Um, we'll have rest and restoration, refreshment existing fully without the hindrance of sin, without the hindrance of death exist fully for the purposes for which we were created, which is principally to enjoy God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. Now, I'm just going to wrap this up with a couple super quick reflections. Thank you for your patience. Uh, and again, I haven't even scratched the surface. And this, um, we're, we're just barely dipping our toe in here very, very quickly. First, I, I hear often the argument that if you need the fear of hell, or if you need the promise of heaven to motivate you, you're not a good person. Um, and you hear that from internet atheists and from various people. And you know what? I'll agree with that. I'll agree with the last part. Okay, I'm not a good person. In fact, I'm a bad person. I'm a sinner. So are you. Uh, should we, though, be motivated in either direction by the threat of hell or the promise of heaven? Well, does the presence of state troopers on the interstate persuade anybody one way or the other on whether or not to speed? Does the prospect of jail influence anybody's decision to steal? I think it does. That's the way the world works. What's the alternative to the threat of punishment or the promise of reward? What's the alternative? What, what is left? Uh, no accountability? No authority that will set everything right in the end? The, the possibility that everyone can just do whatever they want all the time without ever giving an account? Um, Paul speaks this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He, sa he, he says, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Christ. Why? Because, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Biblically speaking, the inevitability of the day of judgment is a restraint on wickedness and a motivation for obedience. Don't try to craft this higher moral structure that, that, that rests above reward and blessing and judgment and punishment. Where in all of human existence can you carve out a space where there's no encouragement for lawfulness and punishment for failure to keep the law? Where does that exist? Even if you say, well, doing good should be its own reward. Okay, fine. We agree. You just said reward. Doing good is its own reward. There's a reward, right? Living in the pleasure and delight of God is a reward. It's a blessing all in itself. So you're halfway there. But, but he gets to define what is good, and he is the one who hands out the blessings. That's, that's the first point. Finally, these truths propel the bold preaching of the gospel. Your unbelieving family members are not okay. Your lost friends and your lost coworkers are not okay. 
we, we try to domesticate hell and we domesticate the gospel and we domesticate heaven. So we, we wear all the sharp corners off where we just think, oh, it's, it's just okay. I, you know, think what you want to think, believe what you want to believe. I'll just believe my Jesus and you do whatever you want to do and that's fine. And we get embarrassed to talk about the gospel because we don't want to make these people angry. We don't want to make them upset at us. We don't want to make things uncomfortable. We don't want to make them um, things awkward. But understand what is at stake uh, and, and if you do understand what is at stake, I think you will agree that, that it's worth a few uncomfortable conversations. It's worth making it awkward. The positions we take in this life affect all of eternity, and so there must be an urgency to the way we live. And it's appropriate for there to be an urgency in the way we talk about the need for repentance of sin and trust in Jesus. We say, because I love you and because I want you to be with me for eternity, please confess your sins to God and trust in him. Trust in his son, Jesus. Worship him because heaven is real and hell is real and judgment is real. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So we live every day in light of that sober and joyful reality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And again, we pray that you help us to receive this and that you do give us that, that joyful, sober sense of urgency in light of eternity and the things you have told us. So Father, we, call, uh, we ask you to give us rest today in your good promises in Jesus' name, amen.